The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. As I'm sure you already know, this podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. And if you haven't had a chance to get hold of our magazine recently, we'd like to offer you the chance to get a copy of our next issue absolutely free. Please text the word HISTORY to 78070 to request your free magazine today. One of our team will be in touch to organise delivery direct to your door. This offer is available for a limited time only and only available for UK residents. So please don't miss out. Text HISTORY to 78070 to get your free copy today. Just a quick note, texts are normally charged at your standard network rate. Please check with your provider for further details. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On today's episode, we've got another lecture from our History Weekend events last autumn. In this talk, recorded at our Winchester History Weekend in 2019, historian and author Dominic Sandbrook speaks about Britain in the 1980s. Thank you very much, Rob. Um, It's a great pleasure to be here in Winchester, my first time uh, speaking here. And um, it's an enormous pleasure to see so many of you on such a wet and and windy um, evening. So, um, I've written several books about Britain since the 1950s, and finally, I've got to um, a period that I can just about remember, the turn of the 1980s. Extraordinary period, uh, rich in colour and controversy, the age of Margaret Thatcher and Michael Foote, Adam Ant and the Human League, Steve Davis and Alex Higgins, uh, Delia Smith, Kevin Keegan, Jeffrey Archer, Heidi High. Where do you start? Well, I think it's um, I think we often tend to be quite introverted when we talk about our own recent history, parochial. And I thought it would be fun to start the book and indeed um, tonight's talk by looking at Britain as others saw us. Um, So I start the the book with um, a couple who arrived in Britain in March 1979 from California. Their names were Mr. and Mrs. Hamilton. And they flew into Heathrow, and they drove down the um, M4 through the rain to their hotel um, on the English Riviera. And we, I actually found a photo of them checking into their hotel. <laughs> now, as some of you will, will know, this is um, from an episode of Faulty Towers called Waldorf Salad. So the date is um, March 1979. It's the second series of Faulty Towers here are Mr. and Mrs. Hamilton checking in. Uh, Mr. Hamilton is exhausted after his journey, not surprisingly. And he wants to have a drink before dinner and then get his dinner afterwards. And Basil tells him that this is impossible. Not only is it impossible to have a drink before dinner, there is no dinner. Because the chef, he says, does actually stop at nine. Um, Mr. Hamilton is uh, appalled by this. He, He gives Basil 30 pounds, Mickey Mouse money, he calls it, to keep the chef on. Basil pockets the money and then tries to cook the dinner himself. And, um... Mr. Hamilton orders a screwdriver. Basil doesn't know what it is. He explains vodka and orange juice. Uh, The screwdriver arrives. Mr. Hamilton spits it out in disgust. He says he was expecting freshly squeezed orange juice, not freshly unscrewed. And um, he shouts at Basil. He says, what the hell is wrong with this country? You can't get a drink after three. You can't get a meal after nine. Is the war still on? Anyway, Basil cooks the meal. Mr. Hamilton orders a Waldorf salad, and as some of you may remember, Basil says, I'm afraid we're just out of Waldorfs. (laughs) And um, 
various sort of comic disasters ensue. Mr. Hamilton finally loses it with Basil and he, he rants at him and he says, I'm telling you that this place is the crummiest, the shoddiest, the worst run hotel in all of Western Europe. And at that, the major who has been listening interjects and he says, no, no, I won't have that. There's a place in Eastbourne. <laughs> As anyone who's watched um, Fawlty Towers will know, the hotel is a kind of metaphor for Britain itself. So the, the guests are a cross-section of society. And Basil, from his first appearance in 1974, is a kind of Frankenstein's monster of middle-class English anxieties. So he's forever ranting and raving about the unions, about bloody Wilson, about the strikes on the front pages, and so on. And the way that um, Fawlty Towers appeared in that second series in 1979 to the its American visitors, was precisely how Britain itself was perceived at the end of the 1970s by overseas observers. A few years earlier, in the Oval Office, Henry Kissinger, who was then US Secretary of State, told President Gerald Ford that Britain was, and I quote, a tragedy, begging, borrowing, stealing until North Sea oil comes in. That Britain has become such a scrounger is a disgrace. And this was by no means an um, outlandish um, or anomalous opinion. In 1978, the New York Times ran one of innumerable features on what it saw as the decline of Britain from its imperial heyday. And it quoted a, a Dutch official with the European Economic Community who told the paper, Britain is fundamentally less able to develop than other European countries. It's a country that simply doesn't work very well. Now, looking back at it from the perspective of today, you may say, well, on the one hand, plus ça change. Um, but also, this verdict was clearly in some sense quite hyster hysterical, I suppose. Britain was a country that had um, gone through the transformation from austerity to affluence. Uh, most people in Britain at the end of the 1970s, and this may be true of you if you lived through the period, were better off than they'd ever been. They lived in houses that were um, larger, better heated, more comfortable. They lived lives that were more colorful, that had more opportunities. They went on foreign holidays. They surrounded themselves with the fruits of affluence. And yet at the same time, there was a pervasive discontent about the state of the country and about its standing uh, in international terms. And if you'd think back over the previous dozen years, so you'd had the, de the devaluation of the pound in 1967, um, you'd had the Heath government um, beleaguered by a whole series of confrontations with the trade unions, culminating in the three-day week of early 1974. Two minor strikes, both of which the Heath government effectively lost. You had two elections in 1974 and the return of a minority Labour government. You had inflation reaching 27% uh, in the summer of 1975. Britain seeking a, a then-record bailout from the International Monetary Fund in 1976. And then at the end of 1978 and the beginning of 1979 to kind of cap it all, the winter of discontent when the public sector unions um, turned against the Labour government. And then you had the, the scenes that have become kind of cliches of, of post-war history, the padlocked um, graveyards and the bin bags on the streets, the children locked out of school and patients sent home from hospitals and, and all the rest of it, which became such a resonant part of the kind of the, the Thatcherite um, version of history. So there was a sort of pervasive sense, I think, at the beginning of the 80s that something had gone wrong. And if you want just one more example, um, it comes from a man called Sir Nicholas Henderson, who was Britain's ambassador to France at, at the end of the 1970s. And in summer of 1979, he retired. He thought this would be his last job. So he, as was traditional, he wrote a valedictory dispatch to his superiors at the Foreign Office. And the title of the dispatch was Britain's Decline, Its Causes and Consequences. Today, he wrote, we are not only... No we are not only no longer a world power, but we're not in the first rank, even as a European one. We're scarcely in the same economic league as the Germans or the French. 
You only have to move about Western Europe nowadays to realise how poor and unproud the British have become in relation to their neighbours. It shows in the look of our towns, in our airports, in our hospitals, in our local amenities, and it's painfully apparent in much of our railway system. And this view, I think, was entrenched in political and economic and sort of economic business circles at the end of the 70s. And this, of course, is what Margaret Thatcher had been elected in 1979 to reverse. We could spend the rest of this evening, indeed the rest of the weekend, arguing about Mrs. Thatcher and her um, effect on um, British society. But I just want to emphasize three specific things. First of all, I think the idea of decline was absolutely central to Mrs. Thatcher and her project. A few, week, a few days before Britain voted in May 1979 to make her the first woman prime minister, she gave an interview to the BBC in which she said, and I quote, I can't bear Britain in decline. I just can't. We who either defeated or rescued half Europe, who kept half Europe free when otherwise it would be in chains, and look at us now. And that uh, sense of post-war failure, I think, was one of the essential sort of foundation stones uh, of her political project. And her belief that Britain had been great, but Britain was now trapped in a cycle of irreversible, indeed, potentially terminal decline, and that she, and only she, had been appointed by fate as the person to turn things around. I think that's absolutely central to her political personality. The second thing I think is really important about Mrs. Thatcher, which is exemplified by the, the slide on the right, was the sense of her sense of moralism and her sense of herself as a kind of moralistic holy warrior, if you like. I'm in politics, she told the Sunday Times, because of the conflict between good and evil and I believe that in the end, good will triumph. Now, that just isn't the kind of thing that Harold Wilson used to say, or James Callaghan. You'd never have heard that kind of stuff from Ted Heath. But this is um, absolutely sort of vintage Margaret Thatcher. And what I think it reflects is her um, unusual upbringing by political standards. She had grown up in an intensely austere religious household. Her father was a famously a Methodist lay preacher, and she went to the Methodist chapel four or five times on Sundays as a little girl. So the language of the conflict between good and evil seeped into her soul and completely informed her politics in a way that was um, immeasurably different from people like Macmillan, Alec Douglas Hume, Ted Heath, Harold Wilson, Callaghan, and so on, to whom that kind of language seemed archaic and outlandish even. It embarrassed many of her own cabinet colleagues, the sort of patrician Tory elite who surrounded her when she became prime minister. But of course, it resonated with her supporters and it appalled her opponents, and it was a key part of her political personality. And the third thing that I think is really um, unusual and remarkable about her is her sense of British exceptionalism. And that's something that I think, again, sets her apart from her contemporaries. Mrs. Thatcher believed um, that Britain was different from other European countries. Britain is not just another country, she told Robin Day. It has never been just another country. We would not have grown into an empire if we were just another European country with the size and strength that we were. It was Britain that stood when everybody else surrendered. Again, um, this is simply not the kind of thing that you heard from Ted Heath, the, the sort of arch pro-European. Again, this kind of stuff embarrassed many of her own conservative colleagues, but it invigorated um, her supporters in the country. And that, again, I think helps to explain her extraordinarily kind of um, divisive impact upon the public. But of course, there is something else about Mrs. Thatcher that uh, made her different. Um, and as you, some of you may have noticed, and as the Daily Express captured very well, she was, of course, a woman. Now, she wasn't the only woman uh, to be capturing headlines in Britain at the beginning of the 1980s. So some of you may recognize some of these characters. This, of course, is uh, Audrey Forbes Hamilton on the left, as played by the peerless Penelope Keith. 
this is uh, Jean Darblay from Juliet Bravo, played by Stephanie Turner. And this, my favorite, is uh, Servalan, Supreme Commander of the Galactic Federation from Blake Seven, played by Jacqueline Pierce. Now, we could do a quiz here about what these three people have in common. I'll put you out of your misery by telling you that in 1980, The Guardian invited its readers to suggest television comparisons for the Prime Minister. And these were the three most popular choices. In fact, Servalan was the most popular choice. And what, I th what all this captures, I think, is that the early 80s was a period very rich in images of strong women. These are all women who um, are, are shown as defying the expectations of the men who surround them. Women who see themselves as independent actors and are determined to take their fate into their own hands. And what that reflects is the fact that when Mrs. Thatcher took office as Britain's first woman prime minister, six out of 10 British women were working which was a higher proportion than in any other European country outside Scandinavia. So this is the period when the headlines start to be dominated or, or when uh, female business leaders start to appear in the headlines. Uh, you get um, uh, um, women heading quangos. You have people like Anita Roddick, the founder of The Body Shop, um, sort of setting the standard for female entrepreneurs. When women are, as it were, wearing the trousers. Now, that's actually an interesting point, because when Mrs. Thatcher um, became prime minister, one of the questions that the press often asked her was, what are you going to wear? Because, of course, there had never been a woman prime minister, and there was no established uniform for a woman leader, as there was for men. In 1980, she gave an interview to the News of the World, who asked her where she got all her underwear. Um, Marks and Spencer's, it turns out. Um, who chose her clothes and all the rest of it. Uh, why don't you wear slacks, the interviewer asked. I think you'd look super in slacks. And Mrs. Thatcher's answer was that she didn't think her cabinet colleagues would like it. And she was probably right. Resistance to women in trousers is a very good, um, a sort of a small but extremely suggestive example of how Britain in the early 80s was poised between past and, and future. So in 1978, the headmaster of a comprehensive school uh, just outside Reading um, had to corral nine women teachers in a classroom because they had dared to turn up to teach in trousers. He had to incarcerate them, presumably for the safety of their impressionable charges. They won their case and got to wear trousers. But in 1980, as late as 1983, a crematorium in Mrs. Thatcher's own constituency, Finchley, um, sacked a female employee because she had turned up to work in a trouser suit. The manager of the crematorium explained that um, trousers on women were akin to see-through blouses and that grieving families would be shocked by them. And the tribunal found in the crematorium's favour and the, the woman did lose her job. And Mrs. Thatcher herself was well aware of this. She was under intense pressure to an extent that we often forget, precisely because she was a woman. As The Sun put it in 1979, who would want a dowdy female fatty for prime minister? After all, if a person can't control her weight, doesn't it occur to everybody that she may not be able to control other more important things? And this stuff was absolutely standard. Um, in the first half of the 1980s. Just think about the nicknames um, that people used about Mrs. Thatcher on the floor of the House of Commons. The Great She-Elephant, Attila the Hen, the Catherine the Great of Finchley, the Maggie Toller, and above all, that bloody woman. And if you think things have changed, just reflect on the song that was chosen uh, by her critics uh, that was propelled up the charts after she died in 2013. Ding dong, the witch is dead. So things have changed perhaps less than we think. In any case, if women were going into the workforce in such numbers, that raised the obvious question, who was going to cook the dinner? And the answer was, of course, Jimmy Tarbuck. <laughs> so why, um, why they've chosen Tarby to uh, advertise microwaves is a unfathomable, one of the great mysteries of history. 
But this was the age of the microwave oven, as, as people invariably called it. So demand for microwaves in Britain in the first half of the 1980s was higher than in the rest of Europe put together. And that's no accident, I think. Now, we can discuss why that was. Is that a reflection of the fact so many women are working? Is it, does it reflect uh, Britain's faster-paced lifestyle? Or does it simply reflect the quality of British cooking generally? <laughs> the newspapers were um, sort of falling over themselves to publish special pull-out guides to microwaves and suggestions for microwave cookery. But don't forget that at the end of the 1970s, most people had never seen a microwave oven, yet by the middle of the 1980s, they're becoming ubiquitous. So this is a new thing that is becoming um, standard across the country. And The Guardian published a splendid guide to microwave cookery. And if you, if you leave this talk with nothing else, obviously a copy of the book, but... Um, if you leave this talk having learned nothing else, I like to think you'll have picked up a few good culinary tips. So the Guardian suggested that if you wanted a trout cooked to perfection, uh, there's a quote, and covered with melted butter and almonds, just put it all together and stick it in the microwave for eight minutes, and bingo, you have it. To make a cup of tea, and I quote, simply put the tea bag in a cup of water and microwave. To brighten up your vegetables, you should pop a slice of processed cheese on top and melt in the microwave for a few seconds. And my favorite, to improve the taste of your cream crackers, as if they need improving, <laughs> to improve the taste of your cream crackers, heat them for a few minutes in the microwave. A few minutes! In the interests of health and safety, I should warn you, you will not only destroy the cream cracker, you will probably destroy your microwave and possibly your house. Um, but of course, all this reflected a wider trend. We think of the, the 80s purely in terms of the great headline moments, the miners' strike, the Falklands, uh, the Big Bang in the city, the poll tax later in the decade. But actually underlying a lot of this was this new cult of domesticity and individualism, reflected in things like the enormous rise in patios, in conservatories, in garages, in rockeries, in kind of home improvements generally, in loft conversions, all these kind of things that reflected an inward-looking, home-centered, family-oriented society. So on the one hand, you have a decline of kind of collective membership. People are no longer joining societies in the numbers they once did. They're no longer going to watch sport as they once did. Pubs are closing, churches are closing, bingo halls are closing, cinemas are closing, and more and more people are staying in with their family and devoting their, their spare income um, to the home. And this ethos of domesticity and individualism, I think, is no accident. And I think it's no accident that you have the first woman prime minister, a self-declared ordinary housewife, one thing she'd never been, who's able to benefit from this and to exploit it in a way that some of her male counterparts, I think, found very difficult. But of course, the gadget that really defined the decade was this, the, the home computer. Again, it's extraordinary to think that in 1979, most people had never knowingly laid eyes on a computer. And when people thought of computers, they were these sort of colossal machines the size of the wall with sort of spooling tapes and, and whirring and all this kind of stuff. Little boxes like these at this stage were unimaginable. The man who really changed things in Britain, at least, was Clive Sinclair, who many of you will remember. So at the end of 1979, Clive Sinclair read a story in the Financial Times that said one day in the next few years, somebody will make a computer that costs less than £100, and that computer will change everything. And Sinclair showed this story to his chief engineer, and he said, I want us to do it in six months, and they did. Uh, the ZX80 uh, was released in January 1980, and it cost £99, so just under the £100, and it sold 100,000 units, which was then a record in Western Europe for a computer. A year later, Sinclair released the ZX81, and then in January 1982, he released the ZX Spectrum, which is still the single best-selling British computer ever made, sold two and a half million units. And by this stage, by the, the sort of early to mid-1980s, Britain, almost from nowhere, 
had the highest rate of computer ownership in the Western world. So higher than the United States, higher than France, higher than West Germany, higher even than Japan. Why? Two reasons. One is uh, government patronage. So Mrs. Thatcher's government, as a sort of sign of its commitment to modernity, um, committed itself to putting a computer into every school in the country, something that no Western um, competitor had ever done. And people at my age will remember that moment when the school got its first computer and the excitement as reflected in these um, children as you finally got to use this magic machine that you'd been hearing about uh, for months. And the second reason is the BBC embraced computers. So the BBC in 1982 launched a computer literacy project with a TV program on BBC Two, with um, books, with, um, with its own computer. This is it, the BBC Micro, and this was the computer that most schools chose to use. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter, because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com extra. What's really interesting about the rise of computers, I mean, we know how much they've changed our lives, is how much their appeal was based on them being a family product. That was what made, them di- made this different from the 70s, when computers had been marketed as products effectively for nerds, for kind of hobbyists. But in the 80s, um, the manufacturers played heavily on parents' fears of their family being left behind, of their children being abandoned in a world that would become enslaved to the microchip. To the advert for the Commodore VIC-20 said, for example, we live in an age of computers. Children coming to terms with them is part of coming to terms with the 20th century. And for middle-class parents in particular, because these were pretty expensive, they cost about £1,000 in today's money. So it was a middle-class market that it was tapping. And for middle-class parents in particular, um, the computer was not merely a status symbol. It was seen as a, a vital step in your child's education. And as people like me will remember, the key thing was to spend months blackmailing your parents and uh, reiterating this point about how you'd be abandoned uh, without it, and then obviously spending the next six years playing glorified Space Invaders games. And even at the time, people were well aware of the downsides of computers. ITV ran a series called The Mighty Micro, um, six-part series looking at computers in all different walks of life. And this is how the final episode ended. This is the narration. Increasingly, it said, the computer will draw you into an obsessive embrace where the world comes to you in your home. With the computer as an increasingly interesting companion, called the factories and office blocks empty, commuter lines fall silent as we retreat into our own private universes. So we can hardly say that we weren't warned. But of course, there was, a, there was a more pressing danger, a more bread and butter danger, if you like. Computers destroyed jobs, as technology often does. And this, for many people, was the age, above all, of mass unemployment. So when Mrs. Thatcher became prime minister, it's a myth that she single-handedly ended full employment, because when she became prime minister, the doll queues were already about one to one and a half million people <laughs> long. And the unemployment of the 1980s, it's now clear in retrospect, was part of a much greater trend, going back to the 1970s and having its roots in two huge seismic changes, one of them globalization and the advent of so many products from abroad, and the other the end of heavy industry, the end of um, steel making, coal mining, shipbuilding, and so on, the industries on which much of kind of working class Britain had been based for the previous 200 years. The second obvious point to make about all this is that it was much worse in Britain in the early 80s than it was anywhere else. And a lot of that is to do with Mrs. Thatcher's economic policy. 
She was determined to squeeze inflation out of the system. And by doing so, by raising interest rates and by pushing up the value of the pound, she made British exports ex exorbitantly expensive, destroying the British export industry. And effectively, in manufacturing terms, we lost about 25% of our manufacturing capacity between 1979 and 1982, a decline that no other Western country has ever suffered so quickly. So partly because of that, Mrs. Thatcher became a scapegoat for, um, for this sort of huge um, structural change. She cast herself as a scapegoat, of course, because she was so strident, precisely because she was so confrontational. It was very easy to see her, as Time magazine effectively does here on the right, as the, as the architect um, of so many job losses. And there's another dimension to it, I think. Many of the jobs that went were in traditionally male-dominated industries. I mentioned steelmaking coal mining, shipbuilding, car making, and so on. These were jobs done by men, and many of the people who lost their jobs were men. And when they looked at Downing Street, they saw um, a middle-class Tory woman who had no real empathy for their way of life, the landscape that they found familiar, the values with which they had grown up. So it was easy for them to, um, to blame her personally. But that's very unusual in, a, in, a, in an international context. France, for example, has suffered pretty similar levels of unemployment since the beginning of the 1980s, when you step back and you look at the last 30 years or so. Indeed, and youth unemployment in France has been far higher than in Britain for the past 20 years. But nobody ever says Jacques Chirac, Francois Hollande, cackle in the Elysee Palace as they, as they look at the latest unemployment figures. So in this, as in so much else, I think the fact that Mrs. Thatcher was a woman is absolutely central to her reputation. And the third thing to say about it is, we know now that this was not uniquely British. But people didn't know that then, because this, was, this happened in Britain. Dog you Britain, says the Daily Mirror. This happened in Britain before it happened anywhere else. So at the time, people saw it as part of the broader, specifically British disease. They saw it as part of a narrative of a uniquely British falling from grace, of a systemic national failure that had no counterpart in any other part of the Western world. And it intensified people's sense of declinism of a country that had fallen from grace since the high point of the Second World War. And this sense of decline and ungovernability peaked in the summer of 1981. So this is um, Brixton. Uh, you had the riots in Brixton first, and then in Toxteth and Moss Side, the most vicious rioting of the 20th century, followed by copycat rioting in towns and cities across the country. There was even a petrol bomb thrown in Sirencester, of all places. Um, that wasn't, as it turned out, part of some systemic sickness of Sirencester. It was just a copycat incident. But it seemed at the time that the papers loved the story about Sirencester. They said, even in Sirencester, the Royal Agricultural College, shocking. Um, now, we know now that these had complicated causes, uh, not least the alienation of black communities in the inner cities and their resentment of what they saw as their mistreatment by the Metropolitan Police. But at the time, people generally blamed two things. They either blamed unemployment and the Thatcher government specifically. That was a very popular explanation. Uh, on the left, of course, Labour's home, Labour's home shadow home secretary, Roy Hattersley, for example, refused to endorsed the argument that the Metropolitan Police might be prejudiced. He said that was, that was a smokescreen. The fault lay entirely with Mrs. Thatcher. Or, and this is perhaps shocking to readers uh, in the early 21st century, people blamed immigrants themselves. They said the rioting bears out uh, the prophecies made by Enoch Powell in 1968. They'll never live um, among the rest of us. It's their fault. And it's striking actually reading um, newspapers from the early 1980s, um, immigrant communities, and of course many of them were now made up of people who were not immigrants because they had been born in Britain, were very rarely quoted. They were discussed purely as a problem, not as people's friends, neighbours, husbands and wives, but as the kind of the others who were um, a social issue 
rather than a group of individuals. And all of this, I think, contributed to a wider sense of breakdown, of a kind of, of a society becoming unglued, of a disease that was as much moral and cultural as it was political and economic. And if you look at the press coverage, I talk in my book a little bit about the, the press coverage of the, the riots of the summer of 1981, this sense of... Um, introspection and of almost self-loathing is extraordinarily pronounced. What is happening to our country, says the Daily Express, having been one of the most law-abiding countries in the world, a byword for stability, order and decency, are we changing into something else? The Times ran a huge editorial, where are we going? We may no longer have an empire, it says. It's interesting how often this comes up. We may no longer be the workshop of the world. We may even have difficulty in paying our way. But one of the qualities upon which we've been accustomed to pride ourselves as British people has been the orderliness of our way of life. And now that too seems to have been exposed as a full stream. And all of this contributes. It's it's part of... um, A wider narrative, of course. So the 1980s don't feel like a break from the 70s. This is more of the same, but worse. And it contributes to a sense that um, having arrived as the the doctor or the nurse whose medicine is going to turn the patient around, Mrs. Thatcher has been exposed as the quack whose medicine is actually making things much worse. So at the end of 1981, she was the most unpopular prime minister since polling began. And the SDP Liberal Alliance, which had emerged partly out of the split in the Labour Party, was on 50.5% in the opinion polls and was the runaway favourite to form the next government after the next general election. Now, of course, it wasn't all doom and gloom in the early 80s. Uh, and, I, and I hasten to add, there's, there's lots of fun and frolics in my book, as, as well as plenty of, of doom and gloom. Um, these were golden years for sport, Uh, Partly, I think, because people were looking for a kind of escapism and because colour television was bringing sport into the household in a more immediate way than ever before. So this was the age of great sporting individuals, reflecting, I think, a thirst for patriotic self-affirmation and escapism after all the terrible headlines. We need heroes said the Times. We need the sudden joyous satisfaction of enjoying a prize that we had thought far beyond our grasp. That's the Times' editorial after Ian Botham's heroics at Headingley uh, against Australia in the ashes. So I could have picked, you know, Steve Davis, Steve Ovette, but these are the two I've picked for the slide. Probably the two most iconic patriotic sporting heroes of the early 1980s, both in their different ways Um, reflecting wider trends. So Sebastian Coe, often presented by the press as a kind of bride's head revisited, sort of floppy-haired, patrician um, hero, was actually nothing of the kind. Um, He's middle class, he's from Sheffield, and he's also painstakingly professional in a way that no previous British athlete had been. Um, In fact, his father, Peter Coe, who was also his coach, took evening classes in statistics so that he could better plan young Sebastian's training regime. And as people often said at the time, this is the kind of professionalism that Britain needs in other walks of life if we're one day going to compete with our foreign rivals. By contrast, um, painstaking professionalism and scientific preparation are not things with which Ian Botham is readily associated. What Botham represents, I think, is a kind of unreconstructed masculinity. Don't forget, this was the heyday of the new romantics in pop music, of people with sort of lashings of eyeliner, feather boas, um, sort of gender-bending David Bowie, Spandau Ballet, Ultravox, The Human League, and so on. And here is Botham, the sort of sweating lion in all his glory, a working-class conservative and unrepentant patriot who wears his heart on his sleeve. And I think that persona is what endeared him above any other sportsman of the decade to um, millions of ordinary Britons. It's telling, I think, that Botham's nickname, Beefy, some of his teammates even just called him Beef, um, harks back to the meat 
that in the 18th and 19th centuries had been seen as emblematic of sort of British pluck and honesty compared with the broths and soups of the, of the um, effeminate French. As one cricket writer, one cricket writer wrote of Botham, Regency England would recognise him instantly as a man who could ride to hounds from dawn, fight 25 rounds bare knuckle of an afternoon, dine on a mountain of boiled mutton, roast beef and cheddar cheese, washed down by ale and claret, and top it off with a bottle of brandy. A man who proclaims one Englishman worth 10 scurvy foreigners. <laughs> now, this is sort of, um, this is all sort of good, nostalgic, backward-looking stuff. And all the more um, striking, because it's so unusual at the beginning of the 1980s. This is not the sort of stuff that people were talking about in the 60s, let alone the 70s. But in the sort of cult of Botham, which reached extraordinary heights at the end of the summer of 1981 when, Britain, when England won the Ashes, in the cult of Botham, I think you can see a hint of something that was to, to bubble up less than a year later. And that is, of course, this. So this photo um, was taken on the day that Argentina invaded the Falkland Islands at the beginning of April 1982. taken by an Argentine cameraman who, had, it seems plausible, was tipped off by the Argentine armed forces. So he'd flown to Port Stanley a few days before the Argentine invasion. And then what this picture shows is the island's Royal Marine garrison lying down beneath the feet of their Argentine captors. So the Argentines had invaded. The Royal Marines put up a, a sort of gallant defence, but it was pointless. They were surrounded by um, a much greater Argentine force. The Argentines started to bring up their artillery, and they basically realised the game was up, and they were, if they didn't surrender, they'd all be slaughtered, so they, they surrendered. The Argentines humiliated them in this way, and this picture appeared in the national press a few days later. It was spread across two pages in the sun and was used in the tabloids as a sort of emblem of Britain's supreme humiliation. Because that, of course, is how the Falklands invasion initially seemed. It seemed as the, the crowning moment against all that context that I've been talking about of industrial decline, of mass unemployment, of a kind of a falling from grace and of a kind of pervasive shabbiness, I suppose, when compared with our international um, uh, friends and competitors. This was seen as the last right for Britain's days as, in inverted commas, a great power. And the sense of national humiliation when you look at the, the press commentary, at the reaction of ordinary people in letters and diaries, it's extraordinarily strong. And of course, things could have worked out differently. It wasn't inevitable that Britain would recapture the Falklands and that Mrs. Thatcher would transform her reputation. There is a kind of parallel universe in which we didn't fight back. When Mrs. Thatcher first got the news, she said to her Defence Secretary, John Knott, we'll have to get the islands back. And he said, we can't. And she said, you'll have to. And he said again, we can't. Because the Ministry of Defence had drawn up, had looked at contingency plans that it was effectively, and concluded that it was effectively impossible. And it's at that point, as some of you may know, in a moment worthy of a Hollywood blockbuster, that the door of her office in the House of Commons opened and then walked Admiral Sir Henry Leach, the first sea lord who'd been inspecting ships at Portsmouth and was still in his uniform. And Leach came in. Mrs. Thatcher asked him what he thought. Leach absolutely despised John Knott. John Knott was trying to cut his navy. So Leach saw this as his, as his chance. And there was another interesting factor. Leach had lost his father in the Second World War. He remembered the war. And all his life he dreamed of vindicating his father's sacrifice and proving himself um, a naval servant fit to stand beside his father. And this was his chance. And he said, Prime Minister... It's not my place to tell you what we should do, but I, I think we can, and I think we must fight to get the islands back. If we don't fight, he said, we shall find ourselves living in an entirely different country in which our word will count for nothing. And the story goes that Mrs. Thatcher gave this kind of little smile. This was exactly what she wanted to hear. Britain could fight, Britain could win, 
And the rest, as they say, is history. Now, there are a couple of interesting things about the Falklands War. First, as I suggested with Sir Henry Leach, is the effect, is the, is the extent, rather, is the extent to which it's overshadowed by memories of World War II. So if you think about it, the Falklands is now almost exactly poised between our present moment in 2019 and the end of the Second World War. And many of the people involved in the Falklands War vividly remembered the Second World War. And they, and they, they made sense of the war in the Falklands by fitting it into a Second World War narrative. So when Michael Foote, the leader of the Labour Party, was asked by some of his colleagues, why do you so keenly support the Falklands War, which he did, his answer was, he said, I know a fascist when I see one. And the way that the press just, uh, and, and, the, and politicians described the Argentine regime was as the heirs to the Nazis, was as a fascist military regime that murdered its own people and must be resisted because if you appease dictators, they'll carry on they'll, and they'll get away with it. And in a way, this was a war perfectly designed for a generation that had grown up with the Dam Busters and Dad's army. So the sight of the... Um, of the, of the ships pulling out of Southampton and Portsmouth docks, the, the great armada plowing through the South Atlantic towards its destination, the landings at San Carlos with their sort of overtones of D-Day, as you see in this sort of another Time magazine cover. Even abroad, this is how people are making sense of the war. And then the, and then the images of the little figures with their massive packs trudging across the green moorland landscape to rescue an island population that have been seized by a, a fascistic foreign power. It all seems like, a, basically, um, a replay of 1940. And that, I think, partly explains why this was so extraordinarily popular. So from the very beginning, about eight out of ten people strongly approved of the decision to fight for the Falklands. Indeed, four out of ten people thought the government was too slow to fight and should have fought, fought straight away. And three out of 10 people wanted Britain to attack mainland Argentina itself and conceivably invade it, which was something that even Mrs. Thatcher would have thought a little bit too belligerent. And it's striking to me how much that debate about the Falklands anticipates the debates that we're very familiar with um, today. There's a wonderful book um, published in the summer of 1982 called Authors Take Sides on the Falklands. It was the, um, the sequel, effectively, to a book that had been written about the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s, where people had asked authors for their, for their views. Anyone who knows authors will, will know. Authors are the worst people to ask about major um, political and international events, but they did it anyway. And the authors all respond. What's great about it is the authors respond exactly as you would expect they would. So, for example, Kingsley Amos thinks that even being asked the question is a sign of left-wing, limp-wristed bias on the part of, the, author, of the, the compilers of the book because it's so obvious that we should fight for the Falklands. Whereas, let's say, Salman Rushdie wrote that the war was, quote, xenophobic militarism. Um, the politics of the Victorian nursery, if somebody pinches you, you take your, their trousers down and thrash them. He said he felt ashamed, ashamed by the, the response of the British people, and it was a sign of how backward and how xenophobic and all the rest of it they were. And you can see in these sort of debates, King's Lamos on one side, Salman Rushdie on the other, um, the outline of a debate that uh, we're, we're apparently trapped now in for, forever. Um, and of course, well, we, we won. The campaign lasted uh, 10 weeks, did it, the, the question that people always ask is, um, did it change Mrs. Thatcher's fortunes completely? Would she have lost the 1983 election had the Falklands War not happened? Uh, my own view is that she would have won the, the 1983 election anyway. That the divide between Labour and the Alliance always meant that she was favourite, and, and she was actually recovering in the opinion polls even before the Falklands War, as Britain came out of recession, and particularly in the south of England, and among the eight out of ten people who were always in work, living standards were rapidly rising in 1982. So I think she was probably always pretty well placed to win in, in 83, although that's not as good a story as the one in which she's rescued from inevitable defeat by triumph in the South Atlantic. But what the war did change, I think, and changed radically, was the national mood. The economist 
uh, the week after um, the Argentines surrendered, said that the war had been a cultural revolution marking the end of the 1960s. And in a sense, I think that's, that's right. Among people who opposed the war, it did feel like something had been broken that they had assumed um, would be the norm from the 60s onwards and that Britain had turned back in some way. Tony Benn wrote in his diary, I feel that, some, that we're at a real turning point in politics. I feel we've come to the end of an era. Tony Benn's old friend turned ideological arch antagonist Enoch Powell put it rather differently. A change has come about in Britain, he wrote in the Sunday Express that weekend. We are ourselves again. And among people who supported the war, of course, that was precisely how they felt, that Britain had recaptured an identity that they believed had been lost in the post-war decades. And however you, wherever you sit in that divide, I think it's undeniable that the Falklands War did change the national narrative in a way unmatched by any other event since the Suez Crisis in 1956. It was the Falklands, not Mrs. Thatcher's election, I think, that was the big change. Because actually, that sense of national decline and introspection and defeatism had intensified after she took power rather than um, lessening. And in that sense, I think this is the single biggest change in our national story since the Second World War. So Henry Leach, in Mrs. Thatcher's office, had said to her, we, we can fight and we should fight because if we don't, we'll find ourselves living in an entirely different country. And in a way, I think he was right. It's perfectly possible to imagine a scenario in which we didn't fight to regain the islands, or in which the Argentine bomb, more of the Argentine bombs had exploded, uh, their tactics had been better, we'd lost one of our aircraft carriers, the, or they perhaps invaded later in the year and made it harder for us, given the South Atlantic weather, to recapture the islands. And if those things had happened, if we'd not fought or if we'd fought and lost, I think the sense of national decline and the sense of defeatism and introspection would have been confirmed, would have reached a kind of apogee. And I think, to use Mrs. Thatcher's own words, that sense of being just another European country would have been intensified. People would have said, well, you know, we, we were humiliated at Suez. We've been humiliated again in the South Atlantic. It's perfectly clear now that our days of being a great power are behind us. Uh, we are just another European country. And as a result, our future lies squarely in Europe. So I'll leave you with this thought. Perhaps it was here in the spring of 1982 as the task force returned to a tumultuous welcome that the road to Brexit began. Thank you. That was Dominic Sambrook speaking at our 2019 Winchester History Weekend. If you enjoyed this talk, we'll be running lectures from our history events every Saturday on the podcast for the next few weeks. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. <laughs>